Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm going to make the same joke I make at the beginning of every year. Uh, you're... Your attendance so far has been perfect at church, so don't mess it up now. Keep coming. Uh, it doesn't get old, at least for me. Um, I, I, we'll, we'll just, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, I will drink milk past its expiration date. Wow, there's more support for that than I would have guessed. That uh, I could talk about Jesus and I would get less response. Um, so I, I did a little uh, research. No, I, I know that doesn't make me some kind of hero or anything like that. I'm not brave, but I will use milk past the expiration date. Um, but I, I have nothing on Steve, one of our elders slash ministers. I was talking to him this week, and he once ate a can of chili that was seven years out of date. Seven years. Wow, round of applause for that, Steve. He truly lives by faith. He spent a week in the ER after that. No, he didn't. His theory is, is if it's sealed, it's good. Uh, don't, don't throw out food. But uh, evidently, with, with this, I'm in the minority. This is the stats I checked out. 78% throw it out immediately. Uh, and then 22% give it the old sniff tests. And I'm trying to pass this on to my children. You know, like it doesn't mean it's bad just because it's old, just because it's expired. Now, I tell you that. Uh, to help us understand how we think about this idea of the Bible, how we think about particularly the Old Testament, because it's easy to treat the Old and Old Testament like an expiration date. So if we're reading it and we come along something that we don't particularly care for, we don't like, we could just be like, eh, that's the Old and Old Testament. So uh, based on some practices by others, I've tried to, to get in the habit of saying Hebrew Bible versus Old Testament because I don't want to imply that it's an expiration date. There's so much that we have to, to learn and, and grow and transform out of what God has written to us in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Because when we think it's out of date and it doesn't matter anymore, it leads to two different mistakes. It makes us think that if something doesn't make sense, I could just toss it out, or it allows us to mishandle it for our own purposes, to take something out of context and then try to make other people conform to our expectations of, of what it's saying or doing, and we don't want to do that. Now, the reason I'm talking about any of that is because several of you have begun the process of reading through the first five books of the Old uh, Testament, the Hebrew Bible, this year. You have your little handouts, and if you didn't participate in that or if you've been out of town and haven't been able to do that uh, so far this year, we still have extra copies of that, and we want to make sure you have a chance. When you leave today, grab a, grab a copy, and you can get caught up. Like, Van, you're not, uh, you're not out of it yet, even if, you're, even if you're a little behind. But we're at the beginning of a series that I'm calling Torah Together. Torah together. Uh, Torah is what Hebrew people called the first five books of the Bible. It means law or instruction or teaching, and it's, it's where you get most of what we consider the old Hebrew law. That's most of it is in these first five books of the Old Testament, if the Hebrew Bible, and then the rest of it kind of explores that and explains it and, and helps apply it, but that's where it all begins. So in theory, and I'm not going to ask where anybody is, but in theory, some of you have read the first 19 chapters of the book of Genesis. 
Some of you are there, some of you aren't there, and that's okay. We're going to walk you through it. It's, it's all right. But I think if you were reading the first 19 chapters of the Old Testament, you had this question. The question is, what in the world is going on in Genesis? There were a couple chapters. I was talking to Steve this week, and he's like, there's one chapter. I don't even like to read it. It disturbs me to read it. I don't even like to like, have those words in my eyeballs and in my brain. What in the world is going on? Now, again, if some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's just like the, the ark and, you know, the flood and creation. There's nothing, there's nothing confusing about that. Well, I don't know that you're reading it right because, I mean, just, just start at the beginning. Like, why is there a snake that's talking? What is that about? We've just grown up with it and doesn't seem odd to us. Or why when God says, hey, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the snake, the talking snake, comes along and says, oh, don't worry about it. You won't surely die. And then they eat it, and they don't surely die. They still live for, for quite a while. What's going on there? How do you explain that? Or why when the two children of Adam and Eve, you have Cain and Abel, why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God, but Cain's wasn't? And then why did Cain get so mad at Abel that he wanted to kill him? What was the big deal about that? What's going on there? Me and Liam actually have been reading it together, my son, and one of his questions is, this, where did Cain get his wife? Because there's four people in the world, and then the next verse says, and Cain married somebody. You're like, who? Who did he marry? What was going, where did that person come from? What, what's going on? Or how about this, this part where you get the, the, where it says the sons of man found the daughter, the sons of God found the daughters of man beautiful and they took them as wives. And then you have the Nephilim. They were the giants of old. And you're like, who are these people? What is, where does that come from? And we're only in like the first four chapters so far. What about what, what in the world is going on now? Noah's story. I mean, it's weird enough as it is when you talk about the ark and the flood. But then you're like, okay, well, they get done with that. They land. Noah builds an altar to God. That's great. Then he builds a vineyard. Then he gets drunk on the vineyard. And then something very disturbing happens. You're like, what was that? What in the world is happening there? Yikes. And then you got this, this, this tower of Babel. Somehow God was really upset that they were building this tall tower. And you're like, well, I mean, we've got huge skyscrapers that, that, that dwarf the tower that they built. Well, God doesn't curse everybody now for that. What is, what is going on there? Uh, or how about why does God say, Abram, you're going to have a child. You're going to be the father of many nations. And then just wait what seems like forever to fulfill this promise to the point that both Abram and Sarai are like laughing when they hear this promise. They're like, there's no way. Abram's like, I'm 100 years old. This is ridiculous. Can you imagine having a toddler when you're 101? I mean, it's hard enough when you're young. You're no wonder they laugh. They're like, this is, this is crazy. This is nuts. And then why does God ask him to sacrifice the kid, but it's kind of pretend and he's not really going to have to do it? And I mean, what is that all about? And then if you read Genesis chapter 19, I mean, it is just beyond disturbing. Like I said, I'm reading this with my son, Liam. We're listening to it being read, rather. And I'm like, mm, maybe we should skip this one. This isn't even PG-13. This is like bad, bad news. What is going on here? Now, Hebrew writing, uh, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament Hebrew writing isn't like modern American writing where we, we like a headline we like a thesis statement. We like to say, here's what I'm going to try to accomplish, and here's how I'm going to try to accomplish. If you read scripture, if you read it the way it's intended to be read, it's a little bit more like the magic eye picture. Do you remember those? Where you had to look at it and look at it, and you had to like kind of 
cross your eyes a certain way, and then an image begin to appear. And I think that's true. For many of you, you're reading the book of Genesis, and you're now your third, fourth, fifth time through, or maybe a hundredth time through, and you're starting to see new things. It's like God has, has somehow, it was always there, but somehow you're looking at it this time, and something new is kind of bubbling to the surface. And I think that we have to understand what God uh, what God is trying to accomplish. It's to be read and reread. And then you start to notice things. You start to notice patterns and repeated words and key ideas. Now, I think we could get a handle on what God is doing in the book of Genesis through two Hebrew words, okay? Two Hebrew words. You're going to, easy, easy words to remember uh, this morning. Uh, these words are throughout the stories of Genesis but they're exemplified in one particular passage that I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because you haven't even got there yet. It's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You're not going to get there for like a week and a half. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery. Uh, you'll recall he ends up in Egypt, and then he, he starts to get his way up under his slave master, and then he gets in trouble, and then prison, and then promotion. And then finally, you get to this section where Joseph's brothers have to travel to Egypt for food, and they eventually discover that Joseph has been elevated to this position of authority, like vice pharaoh over the entire land of Egypt. He's got all this food collected, and so they come to him. These guys that have sold Joseph into slavery come to him for, to, to, to stay alive, to feed their family. And the, the whole, it's a, it's a microcosm of all the stories of Genesis, but in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, look, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, good, the word good is the Hebrew word tov. T-O-V is how we would anglicize it, tov. And it's, it's a word all through Genesis, all through Scripture. Now, the word harm is probably not the most helpful translation because it's the word ra, which, which means, which means uh, evil. Um, and so years ago, go back one slide if you would, uh, or a couple slides, back to the, the verse. So good is the Hebrew word tov, and evil is, is the Hebrew word ra. Years ago, uh, I thought I would be a cool uncle, and I would take my young nieces and nephews to the water park. I thought that would be fun. They were various ages, you know, probably 10 on down. Um, and it, there were four of them, so 10, 8, 6, and I don't know, 4. So I'm thinking, all right, this is a big responsibility, but I want to be the cool uncle, and I want to make sure that they're, they're all going to make it. And so I, you know, each one of them, I go to them, do you know how to swim? And each one of them said, yes, I do know how to swim, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I knew the 4-year-old was lying through his teeth because he doesn't even know really what I'm asking, so I knew I was going to have to watch him. But what really got me was the six-year-old. So I'm like, six, it's kind of maybe he could, maybe he's taking swim lessons. So I'm like, okay, you guys be really careful. We're in a water park. There's lots of lifeguards, but be really careful. I don't want to have to report back to your parents that something has gone terribly wrong. So I'm going to give them a little bit of freedom. But I'm watching, watching. And the six-year-old, he's like I'm totally confident. And he walks right over to the edge of the lazy river, and he jumps in and immediately starts drowning water's over his head and he's like you know and I'm like what in the world so I ran over there you know you know, I pull him out and I'm like what what are you doing and then he's like you know just brushing himself off like I've saved his life and he just is totally no 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 understanding of what has just happened and and I was like I thought you said I could swim because that is exactly what drowning looks like buddy 
what you did, that looks like drowning. So I take him over to the wave pool, and the wave pool is zero depth entry, right? It's just, it starts at zero, and you can just get deeper and deeper. And I'm like, let's, <laughs> let's stay in the shallow wind. And so he's playing there, splashing the shallow wind. I turn my back, and he marches all the way to where it's over his head, and he's like drowning again. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You are trying to kill yourself. And I pull him out, and I ask for a life vest. I'm like, this kid is not going to make it. I've given him just a little bit of freedom and he's not going to make it. And I'm like, okay, Michael Phelps, man, you cannot handle the lazy river. You cannot handle the zero depth entry, nothing. So I just have to keep him right by my side. I keep having to rescue him over and over and over. That is Genesis in a nutshell. That is exactly what's going on in Genesis. Let me give you an example. God, well, this is, this is the story of Genesis, what you've read so far. God creates a good world. He creates this perfect paradise where humans can thrive and flourish and enjoy life. This is what God gives his people. God forms them. He forms goodness and beauty and life and order. It's this ideal, pristine state. It's 50 degrees on Christmas Day. It's freshly fallen snow. It's a summer afternoon with no humidity. It's whatever you consider perfect and ideal. And it's not just weather pristine. It's relationally pristine. There's no drama. There's no tense family moments. God himself doesn't ever feel distant. There, the question, why does God allow suffering, doesn't exist because there's no suffering. It's perfect. And over and over in that beginning chapter of Genesis 1 and 2, God says, this is tov. This is good. It is good. It is tov. And then you, you, th that's the description of this perfect world. And God says, hey, here you guys go. I'm going to grant you a little bit of freedom. But as creator, I mean, I've created this. I just want to give you some key ideas for how things should work. God gives humans moral latitude. Hey, guys, you can swim, right? Yeah, yeah, God, we got this. All right, well, there's just one thing I need you to avoid. Just avoid the tree that over there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So how long do the good times last? Two chapters. Two chapters. That's it. Immediately, humans are like, we got this God, and they jump into the lazy river and start drowning. That's immediately what happens. That's the story of Genesis. And I don't know if you've read, uh, if you've read so far, reading Genesis can feel a little bit like watching a hundred car pileup. You know, you'll see some traffic camp and the con weather conditions are bad and the road's a little slick and there's a bend in the road and you know that the oncoming traffic can't see that there's a big pileup and cars just keep smashing into each other. Genesis is a little bit like that. If you walk through the things that are happening at the beginning of Genesis, it's like this. So humans take this gift of tov, this gift of goodness, and we immediately create, create not goodness. We create raw. We create harm. We create evil. That's exactly what happens. It's like watching my nephew fling himself into the deep end. Let me give an example. Adam and Eve. Guys, you got this beautiful, pristine place. Don't eat that fruit. Hey, let's eat the fruit. Cain, listen, if you do what's right, you'll be good. If you don't do what's right, sin is crouching, waiting to consume you. Cain's like, I'm going to have to kill my brother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do it. In chapter 4, there's this little poem by a guy named Lamech. 
And he, he writes, he's boasting, but it's written. You can tell that it's written in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew prose. And he writes like, I killed a man for wounding me. And it kind of sounds like a Johnny Cash song, right? I killed a man for wounding me. He goes, if Cain, he talks about uh, this promise that Cain would not be harmed because of what he had done, God protected him. If Cain is going to be uh, avenged seven times, then I'm going to walk around avenging myself 77 times. And you see this interesting parallel to what Jesus said in the New Testament. How many times do we forgive? 77 times. It's fascinating. But it's just every turn every, around every corner is another awful thing. And later in Genesis 6-1, we get this headline, the Lord saw how great the wickedness, you know what that word is? Raw, of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only raw, only evil all the time. And so then you get to the flood and all right, global reset. This place is bad. Let's start over with the most blameless man, the most righteous man that heretofore has ever lived, Noah. You have the flood. The very, like the first thing Noah does, I mean, he offers this, he builds this altar, but the very next thing he does, builds a vineyard and gets drunk off the vineyard. And then there is this bizarre story, this bizarre interaction with one of his sons. And some of you, if you have notes or if you're taking notes, I guarantee you, you're like, what? in the world happened there. And if, some of, if you're thinking, all right, I want to learn a little bit about the scandal, but go ahead and read it. It's just, it's just pretty wild. It's very not PG. I'm not going to give you the answer right now or kind of what's going on there, but if you want to talk about it with me later, totally fine. If you're a little bored, read Leviticus 20 verse 11 as to what might have been happening. So humans are as bad as ever. It's just this hundred car pileup. And then you get this attempt to build their way back into heaven. That's exactly what's going on in the Tower of Babel. They're like, we don't need God. We'll build our own way into heaven. We'll build a staircase to heaven, and then we won't need God at all. And God's like, nope, not having that. And he scatters everybody. And then finally, you get to this. I mean, we'll talk about this in some more detail next week. But in Genesis 16, uh, Abram has been given a promise of a child, and there's no child coming. So they concoct this idea, well, we have this slave girl, maybe she can have a child. And they totally take advantage of Hagar, and it's just this horrible story. And sometimes you're reading it, and you're like, man, you know, the Bible, why doesn't the Bible come out and say, hey, this was awful, this was awful, this was awful? It's because it doesn't need any editorialization. We can read that and know it's awful. Like, if you're watching a movie about World War II and you've got the Allies and the Axis, you've got the good guys and the Nazis, if you're sympathizing with the Nazis, something went wrong. We know that that's bad. And so you're reading the story of Genesis and you're seeing, oh, man, humans are just messing up over and over and over. And, of course, if you're caught up, I already told you this, chapter 19 of Genesis is just horrific. It's just awful, awful, awful. Humans haven't learned anything. And it's this loop, this endless cycle of humans being terrible. Wash, rinse, repeat, evil, raw. Now, here's the fatal flaw. And this is important for us to know. Here's the fatal flaw that allows humans to take the blessings and the goodness that God has granted in the world and turn it into something evil. We think this thought. And it happened with Adam and Eve and happened every way along. Sure, God is good. He has given us blessings. He's given us a good world. And God has told us, here's the definition of what it means to live as a good person in the good world I've created. But humans say, thanks, God. We'll take it from here. Can you swim, buddy? Oh, yeah, I got this. That's exactly what we do. 
every time that you have, have created some moral regret in your life, and maybe you don't feel like you have, but I bet you late at night when it's quiet and you're trying to sleep, you can think of some moral regret. regret. But every time you have something that you're like compelled to repent of, it was because you thought, at least for a moment, that what God had said wasn't going to produce goodness and you wanted to do your own thing. You wanted to achieve goodness some other way, through a shortcut or some other, this just seemed like the right thing. And you found out the hard way that it wasn't. That's the, that's the story of Genesis over and over and over. It's the lie that it's at the heart of every act of evil. Is it really that bad? Is, is God really good? Sure, God says X, but I think Y is going to be better. Before a person does any, any evil, uh, it, it can be anything. It, it can be as drastic as murder. It can be committing adultery. It can be telling a lie. Any of those things. Before they do any of those things, they're thinking, is it really that bad? Won't this produce some kind of happiness for me? And, and humans, we introduce this evil into the world, and we're like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Who, who, who does it really harm? Well, it harms everybody and everything. And you are, you, all of us have experienced evil from someone else, even if we don't describe it in those terms. We've experienced someone treating us or the people that we love in such a way that re- produces evil, and we feel that desire for revenge and the desire to hurt and commit more evil to try to set it right, and it just never, ever works. The word the Bible uses to describe this, this here's God's goodness, here's God's good way of living, and then here's what we're going to do to try to achieve our own good. The word the Bible uses, and it's an archaic, old-sounding word, but the word the Bible uses is sin. When we choose this thing that God has said you need to avoid because it introduces evil into the world, when we choose this thing, that it's, it's sin. And I know we feel like, oh, sin, that's just this, this category of things that God has arbitrary call, arbitrarily called sin. It, it doesn't really matter. No, God is trying to prevent evil and continue to introduce good, and humans continue to throw ourselves into the deep end. We continue to say, I got this, God. I don't need your help, and we're drowning. Uh, two different people this week were talking about extended family and extended family drama. And just, you know, holidays can be (laughs) these times of beauty and goodness, and they can also be very difficult and tense, and you have to kind of gear yourself up for it. And they were just talking about how spending time with this extended family, just, it just is tense and felt even traumatic and just, it was, it was everything. And and, and it's all soap opera stuff, affairs and selfishness and abuse and anger. And it's just this endless cycle of it. And that's, that's raw. That's evil. That's sin, what the Bible calls sin. Now, that's the subtext of Genesis. God created Tov. Humans introduced Ra, and it always ends in disaster. But the headline, this is important. This is extremely important that we understand this. The headline of Genesis is right in the middle of our disaster, the disaster of our own making, of our own sin. God says, okay, but I have a plan to take away that evil and reintroduce goodness into the world. It it happens right at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you get this clue of the human, the first humans have just messed up. 
And he's talking, God is talking about the consequences of all this. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Thousands of years later, they would understand that that was a reference to the Messiah, what the Messiah would do. Like the Messiah would come along and and would destroy, break the power of evil. Right there at the beginning, right at the beginning, as the humans are drowning in sin of their own making, God is saying, I've got a plan to restore everything and make everything better. I've got a plan. It goes on, actually. Well, here's the shocking claim. In fact, Leon read it in that passage. The shocking claim of the Torah, of Genesis, of Genesis, Exodus, through, through, through Deuteronomy, is that Jesus is the main point of all of those books. Now, some of you are like, I've read them. Jesus' name does not appear one time in there. But it's true. It doesn't appear one time in there. But listen to what Jesus himself says. John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. If you believed Moses who that was shorthand for the Torah, the, 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 the author they attributed to writing the Torah. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Or how about Galatians chapter 3, verse 8? This is wild to think about. The scripture, again, not New Testament, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, all nations will be blessed. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that comes straight from Genesis 12, 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the goal, the goal of this reading, the goal of Genesis, the goal of everything that you're going to read in the Old Testament is for us to walk away with a greater understanding and desire for Jesus. For Genesis holds up a mirror, and this is what's wild to me, because we like to walk around thinking that we're not so bad. We're doing okay. I'm all right. I haven't murdered anybody. If there was a tree that God told me not to eat the fruit of it, I wouldn't eat the fruit. Uh, If I definitely wouldn't do what Noah did or what his sons did, I certainly wouldn't do anything like described in Genesis 19. I'm pretty good. And that's, again, the fatal flaw. God, I can swim. I got this. I'm going to handle it. I can take care of myself. But once we read Genesis and it it, it reveals this mirror of like humans just have this this desire to to accomplish, try to uh, grasp for goodness in our own way. But our goal, the goal, is for us to walk away from these stories with a greater understanding of and appreciation and need of Jesus. People endlessly debate how to read the Torah, how to read Genesis. I mean, there are millions of hours of YouTube videos, if you want something to put you to sleep at night, (laughs) debating was, was Genesis literal or figurative? Are these 24-hour days or are these not 24-hour days? I mean, just, just even that particular question, biological origins. There are entire churches, organizations, groups of people that have formed around the notion that we need to maintain and keep every Old Testament law. Every prohibition is, is something for now. And you probably run into people who believe that. There's endless debates about that. But the problem in all those debates is it tends to miss the point. And the point is humans need Jesus. 
Buddy, can you swim? Actually, I'm going to need a little help. <laughs> are, are, do you need a life jacket? Yes, I do. <laughs> and until we come to terms with that, and that's one of the, the, the beauties of, of reading the book of Genesis, until we come, the first humans, there was no family trauma <laughs> to blame. The very first humans messed up. The very second humans messed up. Every generation of humans kept messing up. Buddy, can you swim? Actually, no, I can't. I need your help. I need your help. I need Jesus. I need this Messiah that is going to crush the head of evil. Now, this isn't, of course, to say that the Bible doesn't have anything else to say. But if we lose that main perspective, we tend to get lost in the weeds of what the Bible is trying to accomplish. So notice, as you read Genesis 5, 20, or 50, 20 again, notice it's, it's, it's just a way of almost describing the whole thing. You intended to harm. You intended evil. But God intended good. God is recreating the world in his good image, recreating us in his good image. And it's to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what's going on with Genesis? God's goodness, our evil, and God's restoration of goodness, the promise of restoration that was coming all through, all through Genesis. Uh, I, in my, I don't even know if you can call it a commute from my house to church. It's pretty short. It takes me eight minutes to get to the church building. And uh, I have to pass this fire station. And once a year at the fire station, there is this burned out husk of a car sitting in the parking lot. It happens once a year. And it's just mangled and roasted. It's just, just a, almost unrecognizable <laughs> as a vehicle. And you're like, what? What is that doing there? Well, what, it's a little program that the firefighters do, and they have this awful destroyed vehicle, and they parade a bunch of high schoolers in front of it, and they're like, hey, guess what? Uh, some 17-year-old was making a TikTok video, and they got in this horrific accident, and you know, everybody died or something like that. And the, the goal is to say, don't do that. Stop texting. Stop looking at your phone when you drive. And so they'll have, you know, 100 kids looking at this. Oh, that's horrific. That's awful. That's terrible. And then they walk away. And what happens? Inevitably, they're going to look at their phone. They're going to make a TikTok video. They're going to Snapchat their friends. And, and of course, it's just kids, right? Adults never do that, right? And then next year, they're going to have another vehicle of one of those kids that stood there in that parking lot. They're going to have another vehicle of some mangled, burned-out car because we were warned, we were told that there's a better way, and we didn't listen. We didn't listen. That's, it's so Genesis. It's telling us a story about ourselves, where we came from, who we are, whose we are. I mean, we are created in the image of God. But humans are going to ignore that goodness and we're going to introduce evil. We're going to do it. It's going to happen, unfortunately. But God has a plan to reintroduce goodness into the world through his son, through the sacrifices of sons, deal with that rod, deal with that evil, and reintroduce Tov. So the truth is, this story is going to play out in your life this week. There's going to be a moment. It's not going to be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not going to be because your brother's sacrifice was acceptable to God and yours wasn't and you were jealous. It's not because you killed a man for wounding you. It's going to be something else, but it's the same story. 
It's the same story again and again and again. And what God wants from us is just to acknowledge that our way produces this, this not goodness. And God's way produces goodness. God's way makes, makes something better of ourselves and introduces goodness into the world and makes it better for others when we're willing to listen and live that way. That's what Genesis is all about.